your host for Lacrosse Talk PM, Rick Solom. All right, welcome to a Wednesday of Lacrosse Talk PM. I am Rick Solom. In the studio with me this hour is Adam Hoffer with. Uh oh, I didn't write this down. Tax found the Tax Foundation. <laughs> I do work for the Tax Foundation, but happy to be your your local economist. Yeah, I was gonna say he's my he's my economist. That I, he's one of my economists. Actually, I'm gonna have another economist in here on Friday. Well, not in here, but we're gonna talk on Friday. And um, oh, this is something off the off left field here. Ready? The state has a seven billion dollar budget surplus. Are you like? Are you into this? Roughly, you, yes. Or or it's or we don't, and maybe we do. Like. We've estimated that it's seven billion. It was two, and then it was seven, and then now it's three after the budget gets signed, and now it's seven again. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, we we make some forecasts on what the revenue is going to bring in, yeah. and how much we think we're going to spend and bring in, and that difference is the projected forecast. Of course, that changes all the time as we update right. our our revenue numbers. But the state has a bunch of money to. Uh, either spend or give back to taxpayers. However, you want to look at it. When does that money accumulate? Where they like have it in the money bin, so to speak. Uncle Scrooge's money. You know, we're, we're, we actually have this money now. The fiscal year normally runs July 1st to June 30th. Okay. And so uh, right now, late winter, we're, we're well, late, late in the calendar year in winter, we're looking at about halfway through the fiscal year. So they should be able to update their projections for the year and know how much that they you know should expect to have left come in June. From my perspective, we've always had more than a billion like for two years now, since last January, we've been talking about a budget surplus. And at last, two Januarys ago, it was two to three billion. Then it ballooned to seven. Then the budget again. So now it's ballooned to seven again, or the forecast. Um, is it weird? I don't know if you have like a whole history of like states sitting on budget surpluses, but we've been sitting on multiple billions of dollars on budget surplus for two years now. Well, I mean, if, if you study this for long enough, the... The idea that a state is sitting on a budget surplus for several years is, is actually pretty uncommon. It's it's a wonderfully good problem to have compared to uh, California's really at the far other end of that spectrum when you're double-digit billions short uh, in your, your annual revenues for what you need to spend. Uh, most of the time, budget surpluses don't sit around because states either want to spend that money mm-hmm. right away or – find a way to give it back to taxpayers. It's it's a really interesting situation we find ourselves in where, uh, again, we have a pretty divided government and, you know, one one branch wants to do one thing with it and another branch wants to do something else with it and uh, they haven't really agreed on what it is they want to do with these extra funds. How does... what? Are, okay, California has multiple billions. Is multiple. that like 20 or like two? I think it's like 40 billion. Oh, 40 billion. I was going to say, what if we loaned California's couple billion from our budget surplus and then just like, then they would have a budget deficit that we would solve. But we could like make some more interest on, on the budget surplus. I've always dreamed of a scenario one day where the government has lent out enough money that it could just run on the interest. <laughs> right. That's what <laughs> and we wouldn't have to pay any taxes anymore forever. Yeah. Uh, it, it's a bit of a dream scenario, but also one that's that's kind of ridiculous because I'll also take a tax refund if the government yeah. wants to give I, it to me. I live in Minnesota. <laughs> I got a like two hundred some dollar check. So and I think that went to like people that made under seventy thousand dollars or something like that. So um that's the fight in Wisconsin is like, hey, we want to give the check to, no, actually it's like a a income tax break, right? Like they want to change income taxes. This, but, is, the, but this, those this are, is the biggest battle. Uh, well, what to do with the income tax brackets. Uh, you know, certain uh, certain constituents and uh, I guess certain policymakers want to 
uh, have a flatter tax rate right. for everyone in the state, uh, and others uh, would like to either you know lower the tax for the middle or bring up the. Uh, my favorite has always been keep increasing the the dollar amount you have to pay zero in taxes on. Just take that as high as you can get it. <laughs> right. Okay. So not a thing that I'm probably not talking about, but we just talked about yesterday. And then I've been talking about it with other people trying to, trying to like knowledge myself, so to speak, because the budget surplus, we get it from inc- like pro- uh, profits, right? A lot of the budget. Do you know where we got most of the budget surplus? Like how it grows like this? Because I, I made the joke yesterday. Can I invest in the, what Wisconsin is doing to make a, the budget surplus go from $2 billion to $7 billion in a couple of months? Uh, but it's not, that's not how it works, right? It's, it's, it's uh, corporate taxes, uh, taxes on profits, stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, so Wisconsin gets a lot of its tax revenue from sales taxes and income taxes. Uh, most of the property taxes, I mean... Wisconsin's also a relatively high property tax state, but a lot of those stay with the local government. So if, if you're looking at the state budget, it's mostly overperforming in sales taxes and income taxes. And that's a that's a really good thing to have if you're the state. So the economy's doing well in that regard. Very well. All right. Another thing that like the economy's doing well, but we don't like the economy right now as voters, something like that. There's do you read these stories? Like it's messy. Uh, I mean, nobody likes inflation. Yeah. Nobody. <laughs> right. And uh, higher interest rates are uh, not only a little bit scary, but also it makes it hard to buy houses. Nobody wants to move. Yeah, I don't uh, know. I'm not, I never understand. <laughs> we're going to get off on a thing that we didn't want to talk about. I never understand. Hey, we're going to make it harder for middle working class people to buy a house and that'll solve inflation. Uh, meanwhile, bags of chips are five. Even if the economy is doing well, bags of chips are five dollars. That's always my analogy. Like when the bags of chips are back to $3 or there's less air in them and more chips again, I'll be happy. But that'll never happen. We're just going to we're going to have to figure it out, I guess. Yeah. I mean, that's the way inflation works. Uh, Prices almost never come down. So uh, just maybe lock in that it's five dollars now and you can complain again when it hits six. All right. What I brought Hoffer in here to talk about actually was what was on the city council's agenda tomorrow. Short term rentals and ADUs, uh, accessory dwelling units. Terrible name. And then also the facility advisory commissions or committees recommendations to close Northwoods and Hinchin. And I think Hoffer just has takes. He wants to get his takes out. So we'll, we'll be back to get those takes out after this. All right. Welcome back to Lacrosse Talk PM. I'm Rick Solom. In the studio with me is Adam Hoffer. He's my economist. He works with tax. Dang it. Ta- tax the, ta- the tax foundation. Well, what is the tax foundation? Give you real quick. It's a nonprofit based out of D.C. We study tax policy, all kinds of tax policy. Don't turn your dials. It's not that boring. But anything that deals with tax, we get into. All right. So and he comes on here. And you know what? Like a lot of times I bring you on to talk about sports because you're you used to teach. What was this class at UWL? Sports economics. My favorite class that I ever taught. Taught for a decade at UWL. It is a really fun subject. Okay, so let's do this before we get into the city council stuff (laughs) and the school board stuff. Shohei Otani. Played for the Angels, never got to the playoffs, uh, pitches and is an incredible hitter. Gets the largest contract in American sports, U.S. sports, $700 million over 10 years. The Brewers just, the, the Wisconsin taxpayers just signed off on a deal in the legislature to pay $500, $500 million or so in upgrading the stadium. So how, is there a way to relate this where the Dodgers can pay one guy $700 million for 10 years, and the Brewers take 
taxpayer money of $500 million for, what is it? like? It's like 25 years or something like that. Or, uh, like, what's going on there? Like, why can't the, should the Brewers, if the Dodgers can pay one guy, can't the Brewers pay for their stadium upgrades? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're going to see that the, the you know, Otani's going to make more than some entire major league rosters for right. a few teams uh he, he's going to be really well paid he, there's also there's the possibility he's going to be the greatest baseball player of all time which is a really bold statement but <laughs> yeah. uh i mean fascinating that, that we can sit back and watch but the, the guy had a chance to, to to win the batting title and win a cy young in the same year it's just astonishing uh but so is that contract 700 million dollars yeah. is a really really big number uh i mean that number is is about the market value of a few major league baseball clubs as well. Yeah, it's a little <laughs> bit lower than I think the Brewers like one point three billion, but that was like years ago when we do these. There, the two things piss me off when we talk about the Brewers valuation one point two or three billion, and I'm like, well, that was before the Broncos sold, and probably you know like is before the pandemic, and then um, Mark Antanasio, the Brewers owner, is worth seven hundred million dollars. Well, that that number is before the pandemic. That dude, like, I feel like everyone that had about a billion dollars is probably like makes like is worth probably like five billion dollars now. And you're telling me the Brewers owner that was worth seven hundred million before the pandemic isn't worth you know more than that now? Like, who's doing these assessments? We need to update that. No, I, I mean, I I agree completely. The uh, these <laughs> these major league franchises go up in value at such a rapid clip. It, it's almost astonishing. We just saw. Mark Cuban agreed to sell his majority interest in uh, the Dallas Mavericks for a couple billion dollars. Yeah. Right. And so, uh, I mean, all these franchises are almost assuredly multi-billion dollar franchises at, at this point. Right. Um, so did the did the state get hosed here on paying $500 million? I understand the state owns its stadium and the Brewers lease it. But did they? Did, you've looked at this deal, right? Did we get hosed or is this an okay deal? <laughs> I, I mean, it depends on if you're a Brewers fan or not. If if you are, I well, mean, yeah, no, here's the thing: the Brewers were not going to leave Wisconsin. That was all a ruse. Like they say that so that they get the five hundred million dollars, but they were never going to leave. That's the thing. These teams do this all the time. The Miami Marlins probably did it best. I listened to a show out of Miami, so I get to hear the guy that ran, the guy that did this, talk about how he duped the whole city. Um, into paying for that stadium, threatening that they were going to leave, and they were never going to leave. The Brewers were never going to leave. I don't think they will. <laughs> right, you but, don't know that. But. but the second you you don't think they will, you're you're going to see some some new Vegas deal come out of the middle of the night, and the team's packing up, and then they're gone. So yeah. th- this is the threat. I think it's I think it's absurd that. I mean, this would have to come from the federal level that that we allow major league sports to hold cities hostage like this cities states yeah yeah uh i mean that this this doesn't happen in other countries the the teams are tied to the city and they stay there forever whether Mm -hmm. they're good or bad (laughs) yeah they're they're stuck in one place uh i'm i'm you know rather astonished that this continues to persist all right we got i got that off i got that off my chest 700 million dollars for one guy um okay city council tomorrow short-term rentals they're they're discussing just regulating that and are like how do you want to have this discussion? Are short term rentals? Do we just want to talk about whether they're good or bad for the sure, city? Sure. Um, there's about a hundred of them right now in the city. There could be more that are unregistered, and there could be more down the road if 
you know, like, I don't know, it seems to be a trend, right? Like they, that these keep growing. Yeah. I mean, uh, short-term rentals, uh, again, the, these can be really nice, but they can also cause a few problems. The, the nice thing is that short-term rentals tend to uh, be very nice units. P- people don't run short-term rentals that are, are really run down very often. You get a few negative reviews and, and it's done. So yeah. these tend to be some of the nicest units in the whole city. And they also offer a really nice alternative to staying in a hotel room uh, if you want to come visit a city. And Lacrosse, you know, it, it, it's not a year-round tourist town, but we do get lots of visitors coming for lots of different reasons. And that's awesome. Uh, it, it's great that the um, we have local people that want to put their money into real estate in the town and make it better. That's mm-hmm. awesome. The biggest downside is that uh, presumably these are properties that could be rented to locals. And uh, the best data that we have shows that, uh, you know, more short-term rentals do tend to drive up rent prices. Uh, and so there's a good balance to strike here. It, it's not banning rentals, the short-term rentals, but uh, we also don't want the whole city just to be a short-term rental city. Mm-hmm. Well, it wouldn't even make sense if I owned a house and I just short-term rentaled it out all the time. I, would I would I make better money doing that on the weekends than I would just renting it out for a year to a student. I guess maybe it wouldn't get as run down. I, I actually don't know that. Maybe you do. You can. I mean, the, the rule of thumb is that uh, short-term rentals will make any year about 30% more than just a normal long-term year-long lease. Oh, really? Okay. Now, so I'm way off there. You also, you got to put more money into it, right? Uh, if, if we're renting to a bunch of college students, they bring their own beds they hang their own curtains. They, they, you know, t- yeah. tend to, to deal with, was, with all the properties. I was one of those college <laughs> students in a house with seven guys on the top floor. No, five guys on the top floor. And I'll tell you, we left that house not as pretty as it looked. But also, the person that owned that house did knew that we were five guys up there for three years and said, "Well, I'm not doing anything to this house until you boys are out of here because you're going to destroy it." And so it was crap when we moved in. Right. Well, I mean that. That's part of the trade-off you get, right? So you guys had to pay less rent. You guys weren't living in a super nice, elegant place that you needed to maintain. I'm glad you assumed that right off the bat. <laughs> you're right. You're right. You're right. Uh, but no, I mean, there's if you own a short-term rental, it, it really is like running a business in a unit. You have to have a cleaning crew that comes and cleans after every person. Uh, you have to keep it in tip-top shape. And again, it's great to have those in a city, but nobody wants to see those everywhere in the city. Yeah, my argument with the mayor on Monday was like, can we regulate short-term rentals specifically? If I own a second house and I rent out the whole house, can that be regulated in one way? And if I own a house and rent out a room, can that be regulated in a different way where it's maybe because the whole the city we talk about this a housing crisis. We need more single-family homes to pe- for people to buy, I think, not even just to rent, but for people to be on the market. So if you could deter short-term rentals of entire houses, that might help out the city a little bit. I don't even know if it would make an impact right now, if, especially if we have one, a little over 100 short-term rentals, quote-unquote, registered. Yeah, I mean, th- this is the model that we see used in a lot of other big cities. It's, again, th- the rule of thumb, Washington, D.C., New York City, even San Francisco, is you can rent out your own residence as long as it's your primary residence, you can rent out rooms, part of the house, whatever you want, as much as you want. There's no limit there. On other places in the city that you own, they tend to cap the amount of nights that you can rent it for a year. 
right? So uh, if you're renting out a room, great. Go Do for it. In yep. A room in your own house as much as you want. Uh, but what they're trying to discourage is uh, people buying five, ten houses and making them only short-term rentals that, that really drive up the price. Yeah. Now, uh, is is an extra hundred rental properties on the market in La Crosse going to make a dent in market rents or rates? Absolutely not. Um, if, I mean, if anything, I think we want to be encouraging more investors to come into the city and put money into you know some of our older housing stock. We have really old houses here, mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of them want a lot of money. Uh, to go into them to fix them up and and you know make them nicer, improve neighborhoods and things like that. So there are a lot of wins that you know the city and the neighbors get out of short-term houses, uh, short-term rentals that aren't necessarily seen on the top line, but uh, can really help improve neighborhoods in the city. Do you do you have a take on like the Jeff Bezos group that goes around and buys hundreds of millions of dollars in houses and then just? I mean, at what point does that happen to lacrosse where, you know, a giant corporation and and there's legislation right now, I think, to prevent corporations from buying single family homes. I don't know if you saw that, but uh, I'm sure it won't get signed into law because we never do anything. But, um, yeah, just the idea of like these groups sweeping in and buying up all the single family homes and then that jacks up the prices, too. I've seen this. Uh, I've also uh, from what I've seen, it it, it can be wildly uh, volatile. So. I mean, Zillow tried this, right? Like, make me an offer, Zillow will buy your home. Yeah, it was a disaster because <laughs> they don't know the local markets, and so they end up overpaying for properties that, that they really shouldn't. Mm-hmm. Now, when it comes to, uh, I mean, I, if someone came in and bought, you know, ten thousand of Lacrosse's houses and made them rental properties, I, I I could see that being a potential problem. But if they then turn around and rent them as single family houses, I mean. I, that doesn't seem too bad to me. But yeah. also, if they come in and they put a hundred million dollars into fixing them up, that would be right. wonderful too. <laughs> yes, it's a hard line to a hard line to draw. Um, okay, so next thing, ADUs. The city council is going to look into this on Thursday. We'll see. They might push this back for a month. Um, accessory dwelling units. It's a terrible name, I think. Although the mayor said everyone knows what that is. <laughs> Uh, Habitat for Humanities Executive Director Kaya Fox called them like in mother-in-law houses. Yeah, mother-in-law. Um, yeah. Also, I just described them. They're houses that aren't attached to your house that people can live in. Yes. And the city wants to, well, I guess they don't want, the, the, the feeling I get is they the, the city doesn't want to allow people, you know what, and actually I'm looking at the clock. Okay, we're going we're gonna to take a break. We're going to come back and talk about ADUs with Adam Hoffer in a minute. Welcome back to Lacrosse Talk PM. Oh, I'm Rick Solom. In the studio with me is Adam Hoffer. He's my local economist. He works for works for the Tax Foundation. I work here in Lacrosse. <laughs> I, I, I I worked at UWL as an economics professor for more than a decade. Yeah. I still live here, work on tax stuff, and uh, happy to be the the resident economist for you here, Rick. Now, when I approached you, it, first of all, it was because of the Otani contract and with the Brewers thing. But then you're like, hey, I'd love to talk about the ADUs and the short-term rentals. And also the school, the school thing where we're closing schools, possibly. I mean, we're going to get to that in a minute. So I was like, oh, that's great. I was going to figure out a way to talk about the brewers for a while. But this stuff is uber local. And, and if you're into it, we can talk about it. So ADUs, we, we kind of hit on it a little bit before the break. But accessory dwelling units, uh, essentially the city doesn't allow you to, to plumb. <laughs> plumb is such a weird way to say it. To, to fix up your, your unattached building into a place where somebody could live, uh, you know, like without 
I, I guess, live on their own. You could rent it out. Well, what are your thoughts there? So you're, you're spot on. Uh, let me start by saying I absolutely love ADUs and having additional units on your property in which other people can live. Uh, I think it's probably the best, maybe second only behind changing some of the zoning rules, and we don't have to go too far down that rabbit hole if you don't want. But uh, allowing people to add ADUs to their property will single-handedly bring more units online, well, for people to live in, in the city than almost any other policy that I could think of. Are there just, I mean, you probably don't know this. Are there just a bunch of buildings out there waiting to be fixed up in the city that people aren't doing that to, that to rent them out? The number one thing to convert is a garage. Okay. So the, there's already oh, sure. a structure there. Okay, so we have a couple of those. <laughs> just, just lots and lots of those. Now, now you can think of this one of two ways. So uh, either uh, people, one of three ways, people knock down a garage that's there, and then you can build a bigger structure, right? Maybe a garage with living units on top. Sure. Menards has a template building that, <laughs> that you could just go into the store and order, and they'll deliver all the parts to build that exact thing on your property mm-hmm. if you want. Uh, there's also uh, places where, you know, the garage isn't currently there, just some off-street parking that uh, you could easily put up a little structure and make it a small little one-bedroom unit. Uh, and then, all right, so then there's just converting a standing garage, getting rid of the garage part, and just making it a small little apartment. Right. Uh, we have plenty of those. If if you have somewhere else to park on your property, then uh, it's actually, I mean, relatively cheap to convert that to what would essentially be a standalone house on your property. I always laugh because some people, a lot of people have more garage space than they have house space. <laughs> and, I was, and one of my friends in Winona, like they did, their parents did this. They, the, the garage was attached. But if you went to his house and walked out into the garage, it was the biggest, most awesome living room ever. You'd, you know, take a couple steps down and then this was this huge room. Uh, so like, but if you're going to make it a living quarters and it's an unattached garage, you just section it off into three and it's a bedroom, a kitchen, well, four, I guess, a bathroom and a living room. And there you, and there you go. Uh, but what, why would this, it was, so Mitch, the mayor was on here Monday and the hesitation was like, some of it was safety. Can the fire department get to these, if they're in the alley, you know, like, uh, like some of that was a safety issue, but I mean, what else, what other hesitation would there be? Safety is always an easy one to say, oh, it might not be safe, but, but uh, there's, there's, dare I say an overabundance of caution with, with some things in the city related to, um, you know, if, if it's not. If it's not absolutely, perfectly, incredibly, unabsolvably safe, then we better not do anything. Right. Uh, and I think that you know, there's a real opportunity here. Uh, I, I don't think safety concerns should should trump anything that, uh, well, you know, sh- that shouldn't hold this up. And mm-hmm. I think that if you're if you're converting these buildings or building new buildings, right? They we still have building codes. I, I think those go a little bit too far on, on the safety side as well in terms of uh, making it so expensive that uh, people don't want to build new houses here because of certain building restrictions, sure. right? And so uh, what I think here is, is you have some really low-hanging fruit, right? And the, it's not as if we're the only place in the country to ever consider this, right? This is this is the new default in Minneapolis. And you're seeing this pop up, especially in West Coast cities where space is really tight and land is really, really valuable. I would, I would guess there were two, like this, like converting garages because we can park our cars outside. It's no big deal. All that's in most people's garages is a bunch of junk anyway. Hey, if we get rid of this junk, 
I get an extra 700 bucks a month by putting someone in there. Right. The other one would be like work from home. We have probably like a lot of office buildings that we could convert into apartments, maybe in some big cities. We don't have that here, but like I would say maybe somewhere else there, that would be another, another uh, route people are taking. Even here in lacrosse, we see empty office space that, I mean, if, if you're willing to, uh, if, if you're willing to allow investors to do the conversion without making them meet brand new building code standards, then you could add a whole lot of units at a really reasonable cost and uh, bring new units online that could house a lot of people. Uh, that, that is a big challenge for us, right? We're constantly saying that we want more housing, but we don't have any more land to work with. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's one way that you can literally make more land available for use because you're building it on lots already designed for housing, or you're converting uh, some of this old office space that nobody really wants anymore into something that they really do want, especially in a prime location right downtown. Yeah, and then the next step would be, I want to build the thing, and then it's the community around it, the houses around it. Like, I actually don't want you to build the thing because the thing is going to be a three-story apartment complex. We see that a lot, too. Like, we don't want you to build that because it's going to make our homes look trashy, and there'll be more cars parked outside and more traffic. No, I mean, this is uh, right now on the corner of uh, La Crosse and Losey. I think there's a discussion for a new apartment complex yep. that, that's meeting a lot of pushback and for a lot of different reasons. But uh, th- this whole nimbyism, not in my backyard, yeah. right? Uh, I mean, we, we see that with all sorts of things, right? The the location of, you know, something, some property to help house the homeless, right? Pushback on where that would go in the city. Uh, and sort of the opposite, the yes in my backyard uh, is uh, well, where do we want our schools, right? Yeah. Um, we want schools in walking distance in our neighborhoods. And so uh, quit stepping on my toes. I'm the segue guy here. Not you. No, we should. Let's try to softball it up for you. Okay. But ADUs, (laughs) ADUs, is there any, like besides safety, like this would be bad because the city would have too many. Is there any like downfall to just letting people do what they want with their property, which is a very easy way to put it. Like, why wouldn't we do that? No, I I mean, you can't say no across the board because you're always going to find some exception of this rule where somebody did really something really stupid and it caused a problem. But overwhelmingly, if you let people do what they want with their properties, they're going to try to make their property more valuable. That's right. what they want to do. Not, they're not going to destroy their own property, especially right. if they're, yeah. And I guess you could put some <laughs> rules on there. Like you, you would have to live there or you would have to live on that property. You couldn't have an, I mean, you, you could own the property, rent out the house and also rent out the ADU you know, maybe there's a rule where you have to live on the property. I don't know. Like, you could have some weird rules. I don't even know if that's a good rule, but I'm thinking, I'm trying to think about certain I think regulations. That was, I think that was the initial rule that the city council was considering, yeah. uh, ADU restrictions. But the the primary restriction being um, that any ADU would have, that in order for it to be permitted, would have to be on your primary residence. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it, a little bit different than somebody buying a, a piece of property and then saying, like, oh, actually, I want to, I want to put up more ADUs on this rental property land, even if there's not room for it. Yeah. Well, I mean, do that too. Like, right. Like many houses, we see that all the time. Um, All right. So we, we, I mean, we didn't do the perfect segue, but you almost, you had it perfectly, but I just wanted to get your take one more on ADUs. Um, All right. So the, the, the school district for years now, we've been talking about how to consolidate. There's always the word because we don't have enough. We're losing students and we have too many buildings. 
And the first plan for the school district to do that, I don't know if it's the first plan, but the first plan that I've really paid attention to was to consolidate buildings. We're going to build a new building and it's going to be more expensive than any other building. Nina High School built a more expensive high school. So I'll just say that I'm from that area. Um, but hundred, I think it was $174 million. Obviously, voters said, bleep that. We're not doing that. Um, so the next step was to close Lincoln Middle School. Um, they kind of did that. It seemed like they kind of did that, even though we've talked about that in the past as a district or as a city for years. Uh, the, the, all of a sudden, it was on the school board, and then it was gone. And so the school district said, okay, well, you didn't like the way we did that. So we're going to come up with this what's called a facilities advisory committee. And I think it was about 30 people and they met once a month for eight months. Uh, and you could watch all those meetings. It wasn't really a public comment thing, but you could watch them. You could listen. You could read the report was what, 130 pages. It was a long one. And they came out with a, a big, long PDF on their recommendation. And it just came down to, we're going to close Northwoods elementary on the South side, right? They did a North South plan. So we're going to co- close Northwoods on the South side and am I doing that backwards? Northwoods on the north side. On the north. Oh, yeah. Northwoods. <laughs> what am I doing? Northwoods on the north side and Hinchin on the south side. Um, and that's the plan. And and now, you know, nobody's ever going to come to a public comment session and go, I love the plan because <laughs> that's not how things work. But we've heard people push back against that plan, say we need to close uh, other schools instead. That You know, I think Emerson and Spence were the other two schools they were considering. Um, but yeah, okay. I'm just gonna keep doing this. What's your take, Adam? <laughs> well, I, I mean, you're, you're right. I, I watched several hours of uh, comments for people coming. Should, to, should we just to say to the school board? Yeah. Should we just say you're invested in this because you have children? I have, and they I have go two to children. One of whom goes to Emerson. Uh, another will go to Emerson next year, okay. as long as Emerson is still a school. So, can we uh, say that maybe whatever your opinion is, I don't know it. Would it be biased? Extraordinarily biased. Okay, there, okay. There, we'll just get that out front. There's no doubt, and it's it's uh, it's not only biased. I, I have. I have uh, lots of local information on what it's like to be an Emerson parent, and I have no information on what it's like to be a parent at Northwoods. Sure. Uh, I mean, I participated in the uh, in the survey last spring that they sent out uh, district wide, asking people what they were looking for in their schools, and you know, as an Emerson parent overwhelmingly I like that there's a school in walking distance of my house. A hundred percent of the families in Emerson, in the Emerson boundary are closer than two miles, which means they don't need a school bus. Yeah. So they can all walk to school and it, it, it's a wonderful local school. Now I, I think that, you know, overwhelmingly parents, we've really tried, you, you want to fight for your school, but uh, you want to, keep it positive, right? You don't want this to be a battle of, uh, well, like, okay, I want to keep my school. So I'm going to say negative things about your school. Yeah. Um, we have really great schools here. <laughs> it's a wonderful thing to have. Um, you know, my take, I, I watched again, hours and hours of, of, uh, not only again, the, the, the latest comments just a couple weeks ago of people giving public comment to the school board, because yep. this is the school board's decision. Uh, the facility advisory committee, I actually thought was, extraordinarily well-run, very professional. Um, I I didn't follow. I was shocked when they announced who was on the committee because I didn't see any public input for who was going to be on that committee. Sure. Um, but the way in which they, they did their operations, the questions they asked, the data they gathered, um, it was <laughs> – it's a lot of information. Um, I think to sit down and read the whole report, I have, I have done so. I think it was very professionally done. Are and, you doing this on the clock at least? 
No. No. All, oh my god. All as an educated here. parent. Okay. Uh, and I'm sorry. Somebody who uh, who has has put up a yard sign in their yard. Okay. Well, at least we get you on here to like <laughs> to blow hard about it then. Yeah. Um, well, do you think the district needs to close any schools? I mean, that's always the the plan. That's always been the talk. Need is a strong word. Uh, they they don't have to, but it is probably the uh, most obvious solution for the district's current challenges. Uh, that they can save a couple million dollars a year, mostly through staffing by consolidating buildings. Okay. Um, and so, well, that's interesting because the, then yeah. we're losing jobs, right? So like that's th- kind of the- this is the. Um, I I was I was in a, a session where somebody asked point blank the the superintendent what does this mean for jobs and uh, I don't quite know how they're doing their math on this but uh, the superintendent said that uh, every teacher everyone who works for the district will continue to have a position through consolidation their their plan for the staff savings is to accomplish that mostly through retirements yeah and that's then what he not said to me filling. Yeah those positions when someone retires. Yeah. Now, obviously you're going to need, if you're going to close two schools, you probably need two fewer principals <laughs> right? Uh, and a, a couple other positions. But uh, again, the uh, superintendent said that their plan was to uh, find homes for the people that are working for the school. Well, that's a different take too, right? Like if a principal <laughs> doesn't have a job in the district, well, we're going to find you a home. There's all kinds of school districts that need teachers and principals. And so there's probably like they're probably taking that into account. I think it's, probably. It's not going to be too hard for you to go to Mondovi and be the principal there, right? Like obviously you'd have to move, but that, that might be the, the way they're going at that. Right. Uh, the, other, the other big savings was, um, or I guess potential threats uh, that, would, that would counteract some of the savings would be uh, what they'd have to do for busing. Um, again, I mentioned that uh, uh, 100% of the families in the Emerson district are ineligible for busing because they live so close. And a lot of kids do walk to school. I did walking school bus this morning. That was a really fun endeavor, even though it was nice and uh, a nice chilly morning. But it was it's, it's great to do. Um, you know, adding a single bus line, the school district estimates that it's it costs seventy thousand dollars a year. Right. Uh, so I, I was just doing some of the math on my own. Um, they would the school district over twenty years would spend twice as much to bus the students who currently go to Emerson somewhere else as they would to do all of the maintenance and repairs and fixes that the school would want. <laughs> if we go to like your office, is it like you got little notepads on the walls and strings attached to different <laughs> you know, like sticky notes and you're where you're trying to figure out the the math of all this no the, there's nothing anyone else can see that's mostly just when i close my eyes <laughs> yeah sure um because yeah the, the, one of the arguments and we got to wrap it up here quick but spence and emerson they they need like f- a total of like five million dollars in capital improvements and hinchin and northwoods need like a million and a half combined and it's like people look at that and go hey w- well they're right there that's with the millions of dollars of difference and then, but they don't take it. That's one aspect of like the seven aspects that the facility advisory committee took. Another aspect being busing. Well, now Northwoods and Hinchin, you have to bus all those kids to there. Most of those kids anyway. And there, there you go, like seventy thousand dollars a bus route. So yeah, um, it the the busing adds up quickly, and also the the school district budget is large, right? It, it's they spend over a hundred million dollars a year. Most of that to operations and running the schools, but. Um, the differences in the capital improvements are actually really small, especially compared to 
there was another aspect of the facility advisory committee that uh, got almost no attention, and they were looking at doing capital improvements to other schools in mm-hmm. the district, right? Middle schools, uh, you know, changing the pools at the high school and, you know, redoing the track, redoing some bleachers at stadiums, uh, adding tech rooms, yeah. moving things around, right? There were a lot of other things. Uh, the price tag, I think that maybe the cheapest price tag on any of those other things was $5 million, right? So these are really expensive changes to other things in our school system. Yeah. That, again, I, I, a lot of them, depending on what the uh, school district wants to go with, I, I, I think I would love to see them happen in our community. But uh, I want to help put things in perspective when you're talking about, uh, you know, a total 20-year capital improvement difference between the cheaper fixes and the more expensive fixes at the elementary school being only $6 million is actually relatively small. Sure. That's Adam Hoffer with the tax foundation. I hesitated, but I got it. Uh, he's our local economist. Um, all right. Thanks Adam. Thanks. Your- That's going to wrap it up for a Wednesday lacrosse talk PM. Thanks again to Adam Hoffer for spending the hour with us talking about a lot of local issues and a little bit of, you know, Shohei Atani talk. $700 million. My goodness. Tomorrow, I'm going to have UW lacrosse professor Barrett Klein on, and we're going to talk about bugs. We're going to talk about bugs in December, but I, honestly, it's going to be a super fun conversation. I'm really looking forward to it. Thanks, everybody, for listening.